From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Will we go steady? I'll get you the vodka white. And if you're a good girl, maybe a baby sham. God, I love you, Fidelma. Right. In the end, he raised $55,000 for his potato salad. Yeah, the coldest it got, it was was probably below minus 40 one particular night. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the musical history of our shopping baskets, how crowdfunding works or doesn't, and the Irishman who won the bonkers Arctic Spine Race. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's wearing skis right now and doesn't care who knows it. Let's start Playback Daily today with some semi-monologue-like activity from the host of Oliver Callan, who helpfully answered the question, what does CSO stand for? Central Statistics Office. There you go. Oh, wait, there's more. Much more. A whole 50 years of more, complete with musical accompaniment. Basically, Ireland's Office of Statistics Fairies. They sit atop a sparkling mountain of information about our lives in a glistening palace. Uh, well, it's a, it's a grey building in Swords in Dublin, but you get the idea. Uh, they give us these glimpses into our, into our Irishness, I suppose, every so often. Today is one of those days. The Consumer Price Index. It doesn't sound as sexy as it actually is, but that is the CPI, Consumer Price Index, is being updated today. Now this, what is it for? It's designed to track inflation, inflation rates, and the CSO creates what we call the uh, basket of goods and services that are typical to the Irish households. So they do the goods and things we buy and pay for, that every uh, average Irish household pays for, um, is indicative and illustrative of of us, basically. And they update this every five years. The last one, though, wasn't done since the 2015-2016 period. But the, uh, because the 2021 update, remember 2021, something happened called COVID something or other, whatever that is, don't remember. But it's a fascinating insight into our, into our usness in the past 50 years, this basket of goods. I think it kind of illustrates how much we've changed uh, more than even our attitudes and our referendums and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's going to be updated today. Today, for the first time since 2015, 2016, uh, before we speculate on what items, goods and services might be in and out of this Irish basket since uh, that eight-year, uh, eight, nine-year period, we look at the past, of course, to the 1970s, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, oh, thank you, Dan. The fancy Dan things of the holy Irish sacred 1970s were things like instant cameras arriving into the basket for the first time. Wow, you thought you were a big noise with your Polaroids in the time of Joe Dolan's massive eyebrows and massive inflation and massive petrol strikes. People in the 70s, they never really got over the 70s, let's face it. What else arrived in disposable nappies? Disposable nappies, Durflo, what? Disposable nappies in the 70s? No more washing your terry cloth nappies and Green Hill cotton nappies in the well? Vodka and white also appears in the basket the first time. That is the fashionable drink of choice. Vodka white. Will we go steady? I'll get you the vodka white. And if you're a good girl, maybe a baby sham. God, I love you, Fidelma. But love is vodka and white. Out of fashion. Not this music. This is still very much in fashion in the 70s. Thank you, Brendan Shine. Bovril was gone in the 70s. Not not for the fashionable 70s. Gone, out, writing ink, over. We were a new, modern country. We're not scratching around with quills and bottled ink. We're buyer old people now, the 70s. 
God love you, Brendan. Oh, you star things in my nethers. And then, of course, you have the 1980s. This was a sexy new nation being born. Our mass emigration was even sexy in these days because all the sad people leaving Ireland were permed and coated in donkey jackets. Donkey jackets were attractive in a certain, certain type. But what were we shopping for now in the 1980s with the pound still in, in a note and nobody with two red pinion to rub together? Exotic groceries were the trend in the 1980s. Mushrooms. What? 1982, mushrooms arrived into the shopping basket for the first time. We thought mushrooms were newfangled. It's so sad. Donuts as well. Not the donuts we know with the hole in them. There was some kind of strange uh, jammy thing in the middle of it. It's still there, actually, the 1982 donut. And grapefruits, of course. That was, uh, you were amazing if you had a grapefruit. And for the first time, bottled water, frozen meals, fast food, and microwaves. Now, the fortunately, the frozen meals came before the microwaves, so we just ate them like a kind of an ice burger there for a couple of years. And of course, locking up women for getting frisky was still a tradition in the 1980s, but uh, we cast off such anti-fad things as uh, corsets, gone. Fishing, fish fingers, gone. Black and white tellies were over as well, even though my memories are entirely in black and white. How's it going there, Christy? Plug tobacco, chewing tobacco was spat out in the 1980s. That's a long, long way. If you're still using all of those things, by the way, in the 90s, it's because someone bought them in the 70s when they were fashionable. And of course, if you you weren't having grapefruit, it's because you were broke, which was kind of everybody. But mercifully, a new arrival in the 1980s, if you're sweating like Christian a tinsel down there in the dirty, dirty part of July, we bought deodorant for the first time in 1982. So we had a bang of Benji off us until 82. What a crowd of savages we were. And then, of course, the 1990s arrived with Mary Robinson bringing a lot of modernity to the nation. And, of course, Hawhey bowed out after doing the state some service and also doing the state. In the 1990s, the Brits had the internet. America had the discmans and white teeth that reflected their beautiful sun and their guns. But Ireland, no, no, in the 1990s in Ireland, we were standing agog in crazy prices staring at something we had we'd never seen it before what is it Mary what is it for the first time broccoli and peppers arrived into the shopping basket 1995 we saw broccoli for the first time look at it Mary look at the gorgeous bro- isn't it so look at the peppers how they shine will we buy a few I don't know what we'll just hang them up at the front door the broccolis Hang them out to show off to the neighbours. That'll show them. That'll show those bastards. We're good enough for broccoli. People would say things as well like, I'm on the muesli now. I'm on the muesli. Honest to God, Bridget. I haven't moved this freely since the great skitters of 1975. This is very good for the gut, they say, the muesli. Yeah, very dry, but um, very good for you. Filtered coffee as well. That's new in the basket. Ended the gripping monopoly of Maxwell House Instant. The children of Ireland particularly loved filtered coffee for the first time. It stunted our growth, but it would never, it would never stand against our notions, which exploded. Because walks were all the rage. Come I mean, Ireland with a walk. Didn't know quite what to do with a walk in 1996. People in Roscommon were, well, I presume, baptising children in walks around that area. Kiwis as well, brand new. God knows what they did, but I'd say A&E units were filled with people. Filled with Kiwis you know what I mean and hiking boots brand new in the 1990s they were like they're like wellies for goat wear 
Out of unbelievable. So there you go. Out of kilter with our modern 90s life, the wellies were gone. And so the basket of goods used to calculate inflation during the reign of Bertie and winning streak, the things that went out of fashion, jelly was gone. We were still, I remember, we were still having jelly from the first time ever. <laughs> but again, you know, this, this was... Uh, pints of milk, of course, gone, replaced by litres of milk. Oh, I don't try. I would never drink a pint of milk. Litres now, I love. Heavy overcoats were over. Nobody told Bertie. It was and the milk delivery fee was gone. And then in came the noughties. Ugly times for Ireland. Cream liqueurs and fine wines as Blue Nun and Golden October made way for Saint-Emilion and Montepulciano de Brozzo and Baileys. Often in, at the same time, all mixed up in a pint of something. Uh, chewing gum sales, of course, shot up and spat out, mostly on Grafton Street, which was now slippy in the noughties with wealth and moneyed puke. Gone with the Celtic Tiger. Loose tea. Loose tea out of the basket of goods in the noughties. Two-piece wool suits, which is weirdly specific. Video players died. Public telephones and call cards went out with Westlife. All gone. Ah, it's so sad. And uh, what else died in, 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 the, in the noughties? Oh, no, yes. The, the wellies come out of the basket because it was all Jimmy Chews. Jimmy Choo's only for me, Tarflet. I milked the cows and Jimmy Choo's and Lobotans. Lobotans, that's right. I don't know if this is the noughties or the tens because it all kind of melds into one out of the stage. Smart tellies, music downloads, craft beer, avocados were brand new. Hake, sweet potatoes, vapes, unfortunately. And it was the end for ice cream cakes like Vianetta. There was even a ceremony at Oris and Uchtaran where Michael D. buried the last Romantica purchased in Ireland. I now commit to thee to the gods rest in delicious soft vanilla and caramel flavours and chocolate pieces surrounding you biscuit centre a biscuit centre like Ireland itself sure the land under Tullamore is 95% biscuit also gone shoe polish was over uh, because Marty Whelan stopped using it to darken his hair and then cooking apples went the way of deep fat fryers. And so we come to the 2020s and today the CSO will announce who we are today and what we've embraced in our basket of shopping since 2016 and what things are gone. Possibly wearable tech, I presume, will be in there and Fitbits and fitness tracking things and maybe vegan products, plant-based stuff, dry robes. Dry robes indeed. That was Oliver speculating on what will be in the updated CSO shopping basket. Yes, you heard that correctly. At first, for radio, I suspect. Try to contain your excitement. Do school uniforms restrict children from being active, particularly girls, in primary schools? That's one of the possible conclusions of a study by researchers from the University of Cambridge. And this morning, Claire Byrne spoke to Dr. Mairead Ryan, researcher at the Faculty of Education and MRC Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge, who led the team that conducted the study. We're really interested in regular physical activity uh, for young people across the day and week um, because we know that it's hugely important for their physical, mental and well-being needs. Um, We also know that regardless of an individual's gender or background, they need opportunities throughout the day to sit less and move more. And so this study is looking at one factor that might play a role in this gender gap we consistently see, um, and that's school uniforms and physical activity, school uniforms. in primary and secondary school settings. And you found an association between school uniform and physical activity. There is a link there, you believe. 
Yes. So in primary school settings, we saw a greater gender gap in physical activity in countries where school uniforms are common. We didn't find the same, interestingly, in secondary school settings. Um, and we think that's because younger children tend to get more physical activity across the day, whereas secondary school age students tend to get a greater proportion of their physical activity through more planned activities like um, PE and sport. And so they might be changing out of their whole day uniform during that period. And what you found out in this study, looking at at all of the research that had been previously done, what you found corresponds with previous results. Yes. So we know from previous studies is that um, uh, girls in some countries do perceive their the design of their uniform as a as a barrier to active play at break time and to cycling at school. Um, there's also some evidence that girls on days when they're wearing skirts or dresses as part of their uniforms um, sit more and move less um, as opposed to on days when they're wearing a sports uniform that comprises, you know, shorts and tracksuit bottoms. Um, what we can't say for sure is what specifically about a uniform might restrict it. So is it something to do with the design, the fabric or the footwear? Um, and so also uniform forms vary, of course, usually between school settings. So that might be something for individual school communities to consider. Okay, so that really is a recommendation you're saying that we need to look at the design and see if that's having an impact here. Yeah, and schools often have preferences for a uniform of some variation, um, but they can... um, engage with parents, teachers and of course students to think about their specific uniform and what might be restricting movement throughout the day. Okay, Maureen, stay with us if you can because as I said I have Simon Lewis who's a school principal and also the host of an education podcast. Good morning Simon. Good morning Claire. good to talk to you. You have no uniforms at your school, isn't that right? Uh, that's correct, yeah. It's, uh, I work in an Educate Together school so uh, it's, it's policy uh, in Educate Together not to have a, a school uniform. So what do you notice about what children then like to wear when they have a choice? Well, when they have a choice um, uh, to what they wear every day, they tend to choose a tracksuit, really, to be honest, or leggings um, and, and clothes that are comfortable. Um, so uh, in, in that regard, it kind of, I found, found this research really interesting because it wasn't something I considered uh, when I was researching um, why, why do we wear uniforms and, and what's the point of them? And I couldn't think of a single reason why we should wear them in the first place. But uh, that's yet another reason not to have them, I think. But you'll know that a lot of primary schools now have moved to away from the more formal uniform to tracksuits. So you would imagine then that in those cases, any impact of restricted movement or not wanting to do physical activity, that there might be mitigation there because the children are comfortable. Yeah, I mean, it, it might do. I, I don't know how many schools have moved to a tracksuit, but I do, I do know that that seems to be a trend. Uh, all right. Um, and I have worked in schools where there have been uniforms. And, and again, it's not something I noticed, uh, particularly uh, with, with very young children uh, in terms of, of movement. But it does sort of make sense that if you're wearing a kind of a polyester skirt and, and a tie, it isn't conducive to, to running about the place. Um, I do... I, I think um, there probably are other reasons um, why we why uh, we don't do as much exercise in, in, in countries like Ireland and, and UK. I think we're, there's been plenty of research done done by physical education um, experts on why we need to do more PE in schools, and maybe maybe there's a link there as well. But I imagine all of it's in the same in the same sort of general area of mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that schools that have uniforms continue to, to use them and insist that 
uh, that pupils wear them? Uh, I don't know. Tradition, I think, is probably the the, the, the reason. Um, do you know, I think there's sort of perceptions out there that uniforms create equality, they reduce bullying and, and all the rest of it, but, but none of those things really hold true. Really? Um, I mean, no, they don't. Otherwise, I mean, again, I think we, we, we sort of live in a bubble in Ireland that we think that uh, Ireland is everywhere because I mean, most countries don't have school uniforms and most countries don't have terrible problems with uh, with bullying because of clothes. I mean, even in my own case, I've had zero cases in 15 years of bullying over clothes. Um, so, I mean, none of us, none of it really holds, holds any say. The only reason I found that actually holds any say is that they're convenient for parents rather than for children. Because mm-hmm. you do hear, certainly, anecdotally that um, at secondary school level you'll have some competition around the clothes that are worn you know the expensive bits and bobs you you don't see that at play in your own school you're saying no, and, and I think the reason for that is, I mean, it's very, very hard. I mean, if you ha- uh, it's very, very hard to compete every single day uh, if you're, if, if, when, when you're just wearing your normal clothes. Whereas in schools where there is a uniform, you hear about these non-uniform days. And I think this is where it probably comes from. Uh, so people just tend to dress up as in their best clothes for these non-uniform days. And you get, might get that element of competition there. But if, if the norm is not to wear a uniform, the, the, I mean, it, it's very hard uh, for, for anyone mm-hmm. uh, to, to be, to be uh, trying to dress and sort of clothes and things like that. And, and there's a level of acceptance and, and you know, you, you can learn from each other and learn about fashions and learn about individuality from each other uh, because there is not one way to dress. Uh, and I think it, it kind of is a bit odd where we all dress in the same clothes. It doesn't really make sense to me anyway. So, Marie, do you think that there's a case to be made for doing away with uniforms altogether based on what you found in this study? So uh, that would be kind of going beyond what we found in the study to make that statement because um, we're looking at uh, the population level and we didn't look at the specifics of the uniforms because they vary so much about uh, across countries. What we do know is that most children aren't moving enough um, throughout the day and week and that uniforms might play a role. And so again, I just encourage those school communities to consider their specific context, who know their students best and to think about the design in their setting. That's Dr. Mairead Ryan, researcher at the Faculty of Education and MRC Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge, who, along with Simon Lewis, principal of Carlo Educate Together and host of the If I Were the Minister for Education podcast, discussed whether school uniforms impacted children's physical activity or not with Clareburn this morning. Now... It's all very well taking the horse to France, but if you fancy taking your dog with you on your European holiday, you need to be prepared for whatever the travel industrial complex puts in your way. Suzanne told Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline about going or attempting to go to Spain with her canine. Well, you see, my pick place is I want to bring my dog to Spain. Okay. And I've been told that the only airlines that facilitate dogs um, to go to Spain is Iberia Airlines. Yeah. So I said, OK, Grant, I got in contact with Iberia Airlines and there, there are flights. I have, I went, I, 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 I went ahead and got a passport for the dog, Daisy. Okay. And then it transpires that um, you can book online. However, that all the flights to Spain have to go to uh, Madrid. And then from Madrid, it goes to Barcelona or Malaga. 
So my predicament, that's why I contacted the show, mm. is has anybody got um, information? I want to go on one flight because she's a rescue dog. We've been through Helen back last year and this was our treat, the two of us, the true, two troopers, um, you know, just as a treat to go mm. to Spain, somewhere near, somewhere easy, that it's just one flight. But it transpires that I have to fly into Madrid and then get off the flight. Then there's, you know, I'm back on another flight to go to Malaga or Barcelona. And I just think that's very traumatic for a dog, you know, first time being on a flight. Um, so I'm just, as I said, making the inquiry. Well, have you well, else, have you asked Erlingus and Ryanair? They fly to Malaga yes, on a regular basis. Yes, they do. They do, but they don't. They don't facilitate dogs. They, because she's not a, a you know a, a special dog. dog she's just a service dog thank you so this is where she's a small little Yorkshire Terrier come to our mix so she's small enough to get into a carrier going under the seat mm-hmm. but this is where as far as she can't be facilitated well you can be if, if she you're can, she, if you're she prepared can be to fly to Madrid what yeah and then get on another flight to go to Malaga or a train now, or a train to Malaga yeah, but I mean, you know, like my inquiry is surely there's, there's, there, I, as I said, that's why I contact the show. Is there any means of just going directly, you know, to to Malaga or to going mm. to Barcelona so that it, it's it's not eating into my holiday oh. annual leave? But also the fact okay, is that okay. I don't know as far as whether the trains take dogs or not, you know? Okay. Um, just just what, before we go back to the problem or the challenge, um, of getting a dog to Malaga um, and I don't think many For people holidays. are going to lose sleep over it in that sense I know you are and, and you'll explain to me in a minute well, why but on, on public transport here your chihuahua is very small isn't it Suzanne? Yeah Okay Can, you bring, time... can you bring your chihuahua on Dublin bus? No can Officially not? not It's at the, it's at the discretion of the driver and this is where I have to use the, you know, the a big coat, cover up, get on to the bus, and then I'm just waiting for, you know, you have to get off the bus. You see, prior to this, I had two dogs, so I was mm. standing at the bus stop, and there was buses that actually would not open the door because I had two dogs, two wow. dogs, and the, the the time when I was able to get on to the bus, the the bus refused to drive on until I got off because I've got two dogs, and it's kind of like, oh, hold on ah. a second now, there's small little... And have you, know, you ha, and, since your first dog died, what, what breed was that dog? That was a Shih Tzu. Yeah, they're small as well. But, but Joe, you see, this is where the background to this is, you know, like last March, I was at work and then all of a sudden I just got a, a brain clot. So I mm-hmm. was literally in hospital for the last, you know, in ICU. And then this is where six weeks in, in the, the hospital. And then at home, I can't arrive. So my means of transport was the Lewis, which was, or not the Lewis, the... Um, the dart. Okay. So I had to walk, you know, about 20 minutes, you know, 20 to 25 minutes to get onto the, the, the mm. dart, which was great, but it just limits the, the you know, the transport, the, the areas that I can go to. Suzanne talking to Joe Duffy on Liveline this afternoon about trying to bring her dog with her on, well, various forms of public transport. Who knew?
Celebrated artist Paul McCormack joined Oliver Callan in studio this morning to talk about his portrait of Annie Murphy, the woman who had a child by a Catholic bishop in the 1990s. The portrait was a finalist in the 2023 Zurich Portrait Prize and it's now showing in the National Gallery of Ireland. How do you describe it? Is it photorealism? Yes, it is would be considered photorealism, photorealism. yes. Or, be- yes. Because initially you're kind of taken by the shock of this looks real and yet there's an essence that's quite different to... Well, if you look closely at it, it is painterly in places. You can see the brush strokes, but yeah. um, certainly from even just a metre away, it does look very realistically uh, photographic. The only difference is from a photograph, when I took the pictures of Annie, I took quite a few shots. Things like the background would be, if you if, if you focus on the face, the background is out of uh, focus. If you focus on the hands, the face is out of focus. Yeah. So by combining images from maybe three or four different photographs, you get a nice clear shot of her. So how recent is the the, the photographs? The photograph was they... taken on the 27th of October uh, 2022. So oh, it's right, very recently. A year and a year and four or five months. 22, and yeah. 1992, of course, is the year she came forward about her previous relationship with yes, Bishop yes. Eamon Casey, yeah. with wh- whom she had a son with. Yes, Peter, yeah. And what a strange world we were in in 1992. It was a very different world, which is when, when I did uh, have a brief chat with her in, in California, you know, I was. I told her, Annie, you wouldn't recognise the Ireland that uh, we're in today. And I complimented her. I said, you know, you contributed towards it. You brought Ireland kicking and screaming into the secular world, you know? Yeah. It, it probably would have taken an American to do it. <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I, outsider, always, you know? I always describe it as a hapless feminist, meaning that at the time there were lots of feminists who were, you know, leading the charge, going on the condom train up to Belfast and coming mm-hmm. back and really... But Annie just came to Ireland for, to use her own words, for serenity. She was going through a very acrimonious divorce. So she didn't really have a mission, you know. But in the end, through just circumstances, she changed the course of Irish history. She was extremely tough. Yeah, she was. She was quite a resilient woman. She brought up Peter on her own and she stuck to her guns. She would have come under enormous pressure to hand him up for adoption and stuff like that. Yes. And even the... I don't want to call it a performance, but her testimony in 1992 on the Late Late Show is still a kind of a huge immortal television moment. Oh, it is. It's, I remember seeing it when it was live at the time. And then it, you can see the full script of it on YouTube. And in fairness to Gay Bourne, he's not here, he's dead now, poor man, but um, kind of treated a bit harshly, I think. Yeah. And um, she... You know, the Irish press, there's a, a cutting for, I have from the Irish press the next day, said it was more of an inquisition than uh, an interview. But I spoke to Annie about it and she said she's no hard feelings about it. She says, she says it looks bad. Some people said she stormed off. She didn't. She just parted. There was no sort of shake your hands and all that. She kind of parted, but she was delighted when I spoke to her. She was delighted she got the last word in. She said, That's the right. famous last words, I'm not so bad either, Mr. Bourne. And that you was know? in response to, to Gabo she, saying... Yeah, his famous line is, well, if your son is even half the man Bishop Eamon Casey is, he'll be a fine man. And, of course, Annie retorts, I'm not so bad either, Mr. Bourne. And, and she's almost drowned out by the audience, but she gets it in. Yeah, yeah. That's the end yeah, of yeah, it. Very, very yeah. memorable. And, of course, in, in Gable's huge career, 
when people look for something bad to say, it, it is really this kind of is the area they point to. It is it? because he was a consummate mistake. broadcaster, yeah. but um, yet I he think, brought her story to. Yeah, I mean, it, it did explode onto the scene, and the fact that we're still talking about it now is the fact that he had her on the late late. What if he said no? Well, he says we don't want to feature you in your book, you know. <laughs> so all these years later, why did you specifically want to to paint Annie? Well, I'm doing a series of paintings um, called The Vanquish Writing History. It's well known that the, the victorious write history, OK? So the victors win something by force and then they make the law and then they say this is the way it is and we were right all along. There's a lot of people who fall into the category who were not victorious. The people like the first woman in the series I did was Catherine Corliss and she represented the people of the um, the mother and child home, uh, the 796 um, dead babies, basically. Yeah. So I wanted, to f- I wanted to find people who weren't digging into the past, going against people like Big Pharma, as in the case of thalidomide, or going against the state, or going against uh, religious institutions, and writing their account of how things were. Annie was top of the list. Like, Annie had... The, the bishop sort of giving his account of the story and all that. She went up against the norms at the time. Mm-hmm. So she she's very hard to track down, but I did a bit of research. And believe it or not, uh, I dug up an article and it mentioned her boyfriend, her long-term partner, uh, a fellow called Thaddeus Heincombe. And believe it or not, I just... Google Thaddeus Heincombe and up came name, address, telephone number and I rang the number. Specific name. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, and he answered the phone. So that was it. I was able to arrange a chat with her. Was she initially, no, I don't want to talk to you? No. um, No, she she was very talkative. Uh, I just explained myself to her. And then she was offline. Uh, She doesn't, she didn't have, she still doesn't, doesn't have a smartphone. She doesn't have email or anything like that. So I said, listen, I'll drop you, uh, I'll, I'll send you uh, an email of the, the, the portraits I've done so far. I had done about five. And she said, I'm not. So I had to send a snail mail to her and she got it. And as soon as she, and an outline of what it was all about. And as soon as she got it, she lifted the phone to me and says, I'm in. Um, so you, you met, met her in person? Yes, I did. Yeah. What, what was that day like? It was, well, it was a lovely, uh, the 27th of October. I mean, California, i just tell you, Annie moved to California because of Thaddeus. Thaddeus had had a heart attack. They were living in somewhere where they get snow in America. I don't know exactly where. Okay. And Thaddeus had had a heart attack shoveling the snow uh, in the driveway. And she said, I don't want to move. I want to move somewhere where they don't get snow. So they went to a, a, a city outside of L.A. called Riverside. And they were living in a trailer park. So she was very welcoming and I got on great with Thaddeus. He's an artist, or was an artist. Sadly, Thaddeus died of a heart attack since then. Since then, then. Yeah, and then Annie herself had a mini stroke, so she's not 100%. So I was delighted I got her when I got her. I was glad glad I didn't procrastinate. Because she holds herself really well, the pose. Ah, she's very dignified. You you can tell the strength. Yeah, and she's great. She was in great form and... um, she just she has she only has the fondest memories of Ireland, and she didn't even she thought Gayborn was just doing his job. There's no bitterness, yeah. bitterness or anything like that. She just thought he was doing his job. You have to play devil's advocate, you know. God, it's it's an incredible story, and yeah. that's, uh, again, yeah. her resilience coming through. So you go off with your photographs, you paint this incredible portrait. How long does it take to, In, to work on the? And normally, a single portrait takes me a month. Right, but Annie's took two months. And the reason and you're is, working every day, yes, about seven days a week. Now, I do take the odd day off, but uh, yeah. five or six hour day. And that, when I say a five to six hour day, 
I mean actually painting. I don't, I don't mean, you know, having a break or answering <laughs> yeah, Facebook. It's not the I mean, shift yeah, that's, yes. uh, that they're working so, on. So um, it took two months. And the reason why is her dress alone took 22 days. I kid you not. I couldn't believe wow. it myself. Describe the dress. Okay, the dress is a floral dress. And it's a long one. It's right down to the ankles. and it's. But what's unusual about it is it doesn't have a pattern. In as much as a pattern, by definition, repeats. Yeah. It is one single print of flowers that are a rose-coloured rose, olive-coloured greens. There's a sort of forget-me-not, a pale forget-me-not blue flower. And then you have the natural folds in a dress. So when, a dre- when you sit down, the dress folds, OK? So you have light <laughs> and shadow. But to make it really difficult, she was sitting in her garden and there was dappled light coming through. So you have parts of the dress which are very brightly lit and you have parts of the dress that are in shadow. It took forever to do it. Each day I go to the studio and say, I'm going to finish the dress today. And each day I just get a little bit of it done. When you're having a portrait painted, do the artist a favour and wear plain clothes, or failing that clothes, with a repeating pattern. That's artist Paul McCormack talking to Oliver Callan about his remarkable painting of Annie Murphy, which is on display at the National Gallery in Dublin. Dancing with the Stars judge Julian Benson has been dealing with a cystic fibrosis diagnosis since he was two years of age. He's now looking for support for a project he's planning for the cystic fibrosis community. And today with Claire Byrne reporter Evelyn O'Rourke met Julian and his team to hear all about it. The idea is very simple. The foundation, the charity, the Julian Benson Foundation, known as JBF, all very cool. <laughs> They've bought a beautiful period home in Dublin in Rathgar. So far, so good. But it's in horrendous condition. I mean, think of the worst houses you see in property programmes. You know, the ones at the start of the show and you think this is never going to happen. Yes. Uh, and the big dream is that the house, with the help of any volunteers who can help, is that they will be converted into four apartments where families can stay when they're up in Dublin in particular, going to St Vincent's Hospital, which of course is the centre for so much of the care, uh, and they can support their loved one through the treatment. So at the moment, we know that families suddenly, maybe it happens as an emergency, suddenly have to drop everything, come to Dublin for treatment, and hotel stays are expensive even to get the accommodation uh, and they're dreadful stories you know people sometimes sleeping in cars and hospital car parks and all that kind of thing Now the plan was you were going to meet Julian at the house mm-hmm. for the chat but unfortunately he got sick and he had to go back into St Vincent's Hospital so that's where you went to meet him Yeah I mean we know he can get bad bouts when he needs additional treatment and care so instead of meeting him at the house he invited me to come to talk to him it was a real privilege Claire. I came into his ward his room there on St Christopher's Ward in St Vincent's a place that he calls his second home and when I called into him I sat down with him and I heard a lot more about his plans and his dreams for the Tranquility House Hello Julian oh, Hello Evelyn oh, how Lovely are you? to see you Welcome You're most welcome Thank Welcome so to my home away from home <laughs> St Vincent's <laughs> Listen, it's lovely to see you and thanks for coming to visit us this day. I think you're the only patient here at the moment with a sparkly baseball hat on. Now, can I just let you know a little secret? When I go to hospital, I like to bring a little sparkle and shine. It's all about keeping yourself motivated, healthy body, healthy And yourself, this is your style. Yeah, and this is me, yeah, like I am the Captain Sparkle. This is me, this is my style. And you know what? You've got to keep positive. And this is the first time actually I've ever done an interview in a hospital bedroom. And this is why this is so important. The reason I'm doing this is because this project is everything. You know, I normally would be a very private person and I would keep this to myself. But I'm out there 
and I want to show and help the community and show people anything is possible. So, you know, when you're in here, it can be very lonely. It can be very isolating. And that's part of the reason why we have this house. Because the house is for families. And imagine your son or your daughter is sick in hospital and you live in Donegal or Cork or Galway and you've got to come to Dublin. But you're rushing home to get back. You can't stay with them. You can't spend quality time. What we look forward to most in here is somebody coming through that door and a smile. And when we're really sick, we want someone by our beds. And I've seen many, many families over the years, Evelyn, on chairs, sleeping on floors, and people crying because they couldn't have their loved one or their mother or father beside them. That was heartbreaking. And that's why I always said years ago with my mum, if ever a moment came that I could make a difference and come together and bring great people together, I would do it. And that's why this project, Tranquility House, is so important. Well, he couldn't have explained it better, in fairness to Julian. Um, So that's the dream. The house needs to be converted. You've described (laughs) it in fairly stark terms so far. And you have seen it for yourself, clearly. How bad is it? It's it's in pretty terrible shape. The exterior is stunning. It's on this absolutely beautiful, leafy, quiet road. So the area is perfect for people who will need kind of calm and peace. But as you make your way through it with the hard hats on, there are literally holes in the floorboards, gaps in the windows. But you can see what it could be. You can visualise it and how beautiful it'll be. So I donned my heart hat and went along for the tour and my guide was Louise Dugan who's the CEO of the Julian Benson Foundation and as you'll hear there's a huge team involved here I mean he's the name obviously but there's a massive team involved here and they really need support. Good morning and welcome to Tranquility House. Now this is beautiful but a building site. My goodness. Needs a lot of care and attention. (laughs) This is an old beautiful period building but there are gaps in the walls, there are holes everywhere. It is on its last legs. It's structurally very, very sound. This house is standing for over 160 years. It needs a lot of work done and it needs a lot of people to help to do it. Currently looking at a gaping (laughs) hole in a window out to our back garden. This house is going to become a four apartment house. Where we are standing is in the lobby of the house. We've just walked up the, the, the main stairs. We are going to be sensitive to the house itself, but our time and effort is going to go into the practical side, which is turning it into four apartments where cystic fibrosis people, their families, their support network can come and stay when they're going to St. Vincent's for treatment. So they will have complete security, complete safety, and most important for us, it's a home away from home. They get to come in, they get to close the door, they will have a sitting room, bedroom, kitchen, full facilities, as if they were in their own home. So we're just making our way to the back of the house here. So, I mean, I can see it is comical. There's a bath in there. I'm not sure anybody would want to use it. But, you know, you've got RSJs in already, ready to go. But I'm looking at the back garden. So as you look down through the holes in our... literally holes. I mean, I'm (laughs) stepping around holes in the floor here. Yes, the scope within the back garden. Peter Donegan, the only Irish landscape architect to ever win the Melbourne Gold Medal in the Melbourne Flower Show. He won it last year. We are so very blessed that Peter has donated his time to turn the garden into what will be a haven. Now, talk to me about Julian Benson, because he's obviously, you know, the lightning rod for all this. Julian's mum, Maura, would be a huge inspiration for the reason why this needs to exist, because Julian's mum slept on the floor beside him, because you wouldn't leave your child in hospital. And the biggest problem is the care is there, but it's the support network 
so that when your loved one is in hospital, you know that they're okay too. So we are making a nationwide call out to all trades and services companies to come on board this journey with us and to help us open this house for the 1st of August. So Louise has outlined the task. Mm -hmm. They're looking for help, clearly. So what can people do? Well, look, pen and paper for this one. So in a few weeks' time, they're going to host a 10-day building blitz, right? And it'll be done under the watchful eye of everybody's favourite architect, Dermot Bannon, who was doing the design for this. So what they're looking for is a long list of experienced home builders to help. And the idea is this. This Friday, February 23rd, people might be able to offer their time or their skills or resources for the building blitz. They want anybody could help with this renovation project to sign up to the Trades and Suppliers Open Day. The idea is this, they want to know what they have so they can then plan the building okay. blitz, right? Because they're going to try and do it in 10 days. In 10 days with Dermot running around and a camera crew behind oh, him. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, Julian Benson, like, come on, you know. There's no, no too big a challenge for this man sitting in his hospital ward with his sparkly head hat on, like he's fantastic. Good for him. Well, if anyone could do it, it it's exactly. Julian. Exactly. So- Today with Clareburn reporter Evelyn O'Rourke talking about the Julian Benson Foundation's efforts to build an open tranquility house for cystic fibrosis patients who have to travel to Dublin for treatment. Irishman Kevin Leahy was the last man standing at the finish line of the gruelling Montane Arctic Spine Race last Tuesday. He spoke to Catherine Thomas sitting in for Ray Darcy this afternoon. So come here, tell me about the race then, just so we can get a sense of what you put your body through. So I suppose so I ended up racing for uh, just over 300 kilometres. Um, it's totally self-sufficient, so you're pulling, you're pulling all everything belonging to you. So your food, your, your sleeping bag, your emergency rations, any spare clothes you need, and all your cooking equipment and stuff like that as well. A tent? Um, I, t- I didn't. Uh, I was in a tent for the first couple of nights. Then I abandoned the tent and I had uh, a little bivy bag. So it's like another bag that goes over a sleeping bag. So I, the second half of the race, I just had the bivy rather than the tent. I was having a lot of condensation issues with the tent. Every time I'd wake up, it would be wet inside. So I changed over to a bivy bag. OK, so you're sleeping in a bag. And this is minus 40. Yeah, the coldest it got, it was, it was probably below minus 40 one particular night. Are you Quite able to too- sleep? I, I, yeah, definitely got some restorative shot eye. All right, yeah. I wasn't sure how I was going to go because minus four. That's 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 desperately cold. I just, I didn't. I was I was kind of cruising along and I knew it was cold on these lakes and I I bumped into these in the middle of the night. These two mushers, these like you know the dog sled guys, mm. and uh, one of them said it's it's really cold. It's really cold on these lakes. Minus forty, and I was like right. <laughs> and I was like normally when you hear those temperatures are when it gets really cold, you try to just keep moving, not, like not not sleep. But I was so tired, I had to sleep. I was just I, I was worried I was going to fall asleep kind of standing up, which was kind of more dangerous. Yeah. So I got to this little uh, abandoned village. A lot of the, the Sami villages up here are abandoned in the winter. Uh, but there was a church there, so I dug all the snow off the steps of the church and set, set up my little bed. And I got in and, yeah, I, I, I slept because I woke up and I woke up and it was nice. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm alive and the sun has rose, so this is good. I'm alive, but that's a bonus. <laughs> yeah. um, like, descri- try and describe how that cold feels because I'm somebody who really feels the cold. I feel the cold in the extremities of the fingers and the toes and the pain. I'm just, I can't even comprehend. Yeah, it's, it's probably a similar, it's probably a similar pain to what you would get, except except more and worse. But um, I suppose I've got, you know, I'm, I'm well kitted out with the layers and stuff like that. I've got, 
I've got uh, three, maybe sometimes four, four pairs of gloves on. And again, it's it's about keeping moving, keeping yourself warm. But the extremities are always the ones, you know, they're yeah. always the ones that start to start to bite first. You get the frost nip first, and you can get the frost bite and stuff like that. And how um, many people took part in the race, Kevin? And are you kind of cross? Are you over and back with them? Are you, you know, or did you lead from the front the whole way? Or how does that um, work? Uh, Fifteen started the race. I was, I was kind of pretty much front runner the majority of it. Now, there was a couple of people I was kind of with, with here and there kind of thing, but mm. one by one, they slowly dropped off. So I was kind of the last two, three days, two nights out there by myself. Okay, and Just, I can uh, imagine that has positives, obviously, but negatives as well, because you have no idea what speed they're coming behind you or what speed you're travelling at. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. yeah. It, it gives more of a... There's the race feel, you know, which you know, which I don't always love. Like I like just being out there. I did really enjoy the last couple of days because like, ah, this isn't the race anymore. This is me walking in the snow, um, which which was nice. You know, you're not, you're not panicking so much kind of thing. You get to enjoy the experience a lot more. Mm-hmm. And you did this on skis. It's uh, it's what we pointed out at the beginning. You've done these ultra marathons before, where you're running in snow and and all that. You've completed a lot of those adventure races, but this was the first time you'd done it on skis. And you you've never been skiing. No, I've never I've never done much skiing. No, when I signed up when I signed up for it, I kind of thought I was doing it on foot, and then I cut up for a, a video call with the with the organizer, and he's like, no, no, you you'll you'll need to do it on skis. It's just because just purely because of the conditions, and you couldn't you couldn't finish it on, on snowshoes kind of thing, and in the time specified. Uh, and I was happy to be honest. I I always wanted to. I'd, I'd I'd come across a guy years ago that had that that did a lot of like hut to hut skiing. You can ski you can ski from Norway over to Russia all, via all these huts. I was like, that sounds like a cool adventure. So I've always had this kind of long distance skiing thing on my mind. Mm. And this was just like right. I better learn to ski then. The remarkably chilled. Get it? Kevin Leahy, winner of the quite frankly insane sounding Montane Arctic Spine Race. Kevin was talking to Catherine Thomas on the Ray Darcy Show this afternoon. Back on Oliver Callan, and if you listen to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, or even if you don't, you might have heard that the host espouses the benefits of a meat-only diet. Aside from the terrifying dessert implications of such a regime, is it really better for you? One person who disagrees with Rogan is Barry Kerrigan, the managing director of Kerrigan's Craft Butchers. And Barry spoke to Oliver this morning. I just don't buy into the propaganda of one particular diet after the other. Um, I just think that, like, you know, we all have to be sensible. And just saying eating meat three times a day, seven days a week is, is not the way forward, in my opinion. Sounds like a butcher's dream, though, doesn't it? Sounds like a butcher's dream, but like yesterday, for instance, I didn't have any meat yesterday. It was a black, it was black uh, fast yesterday. So, oh yeah, Ash Wednesday. Is have a butcher? I don't eat meat seven days a week. So, how often I do you eat meat then? I would say probably four, five days a week. I'd have meat. <laughs> that's from, that's amazing. And uh, why is it a health thing, or are you? Th- is it a climate thing? What's your What's your thinking? For me, it's just about all the research I've done. It's just like, you know, we need a full balanced diet. We need good protein source. We need good vegetables. We need good plants in our diets, you know. So it's just being clever about what we consume, what we eat, what we drink. So I just don't buy into all the propaganda of meat only or vegan only or, you know. On the the bowls, yeah. So on the day... On the days you're eating meat, I'm kind of picturing you, uh, Henry VIII, um, sitting at the table, eating with your hands, big steaks... Big legs of poultry. 
Yes. Your meat-eating days, are they gargantuan? They are beautiful, sourced, Irish, grass-fed beef, amazing, cooked to perfection. Wagyu beef from County Cork is absolutely amazing. That's, if you're asking me what's my last meal on death row, <laughs> Wagyu, my, Wagyu, ribeye steak and chips. And four days, uh, four, four days a week as well. Now you're sounding <laughs> like a butcher. That is the thing. <laughs> uh, what sort of, uh, do we know about the damage or have you looked up, because you said you've done research there on the, on the damage that the Joe Rogan meat-only diet would be doing to someone. I wouldn't necessarily say it's damaged. I just don't, I just don't, you know, I just can't align myself with a carnivore diet. You know, I've got two young daughters. I would not be saying to them, right, girls, now we're going to go carnivore only. You can't have any fruit. You can't have any vegetables. We're just going to eat meat three, day, three times a day, seven days a week. Yeah, he goes there. Uh, he went a full 30 days, Joe Rogan, eating beef, elk, bacon and eggs. Uh, no carbohydrates, he says. He says he has loads of energy and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, he's trying to wind up the vegan group. Isn't that his sort of marketing thing as a podcaster? That's what he's, that's yeah, what he's I think at. it is. That's why, you know, I'm sure he has a certain cohort of people that buy into that. But for me, we would not be recommending that at Kerrigan's. You know, we sell fish, we sell plant-based foods. You know, we... We condone a good, healthy Irish diet, diet of meat or fish and vegetables uh, and, come and here, potatoes. I, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, well, we're hearing a lot of uh, retailers closing around the country. How is the butcher's trade doing? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough at the is moment, it? but I suppose we're 50 years in business and um, over those 50 years there's always been different kind of um, different ways we have to kind of be mindful of trying to run the business. There's always been obstacles and opportunities, so we'll always be on the opportunity side of things. And yeah, it is difficult. Football is, is um, you know, the supermarkets are really aggressive with their with the special offers, but people come to us because we have a better product, we have better customer service, we have better consistency. So that's what we pride ourselves on. Yeah, it's good to have a chat with a butcher and find out exactly what you're getting rather than just picking up the, the packet on the... This, yeah, like end, you know, a butcher, <clears throat> a butcher, all he's selling, 100% of, well, 95% of his sales is meat. Where yeah. you go into the supermarket, you know, it might be 10 or 15% of their sales are meat, so we have to get it right. Yeah, and of course the vegan movement, it's a small, it's a small market anyway, it's a small group of, of people, it's, it's a small cohort, but you're, you're supplying them. Are we still eating plenty of meat in Ireland, do you reckon? Yes, we are, but I think we're, we're now... You can see on big family occasions, like Christmas time, obviously turkey and ham, Easter's coming up. With all, we all be enjoying a nice bit of spring lamb. So, big family occasions, you get the family around. There's always seems to get meat. Meat is always on the table. But um, yeah, we're still selling plenty of meat and a wide, a wide variety of meat. You know, most of our meat is is free range. It's all Irish produce. It's grass fed. It's really good, high standards. So, and that's one thing in this country we're very lucky having. One thing Joe Rogan doesn't have, because American meat, as we know, is all grain-fed and That's a great point. Antibiot- mm-hmm. antibiotics and all that kind of stuff. In Ireland, we're blessed with beautiful, like today, it's lashing rain, which is good for the grass, which is good for the animals. And that's why we have some, we have some of the best beef in the world. Barry Kerrigan, the Managing Director of Kerrigan's Craft Butchers, giving Oliver Callan the full marketing spiel this morning, as well as giving Joe Rogan and his notion of eating meat all the time one in the eye. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, have you ever wondered how sites like GoFundMe operate? No? Well, RTE's Adam Maguire has, so you don't have to. Adam joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk all things crowdfunding adjacent. 
Will you tell us how big crowdfunding has yeah. become, first of all? R- really, really big uh, and only expected to get bigger in, in the coming years. So th- the figures are hard to pin down, but I've seen estimations of between 11 and $17 billion in crowdfunding transactions in 2022. Projections of that rising to between 30 and 40 by 2028. So huge amounts of money going through these platforms. And it's a relatively new business model as well. Obviously, the idea of everyone chipping in to, you know, give someone some money or give someone a leg up or to help out someone with a business. It's not new, but the, the digital platform to do it and for people around mm. the world who have never met to be able to chip in and to be so organised is quite new. So that amount of money is really incredible. And it's not always about charity either, is it? No, people will probably be quite familiar with platforms like GoFundMe where it's 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 generally a charity kind of thing. But it can really be for anything. It's really just about lots of money coming together from different sources. So Kickstarter and Indiegogo, for example, they're places where people often you know, have startup companies, they have a new product or even a film idea or a TV series idea and they ask people to chip in to make that happen. The, the idea is they kind of give a proof of concept, maybe they show off a prototype and then ask people to, to make that, re- that reality, maybe fund the mass production or maybe fund research. And usually in return, they say, we'll, we'll give you the finished product or we'll give you access to the film we make or whatever it is. So it's kind of a way of getting people to buy the product in advance and mm-hmm. make it happen. I suppose it also shows in advance that there's a market there for this product if people are willing to pay in advance. Uh, Patreon is another one people might have heard of, which is, the name suggests it's kind of like the old patron system. So artists and creators will use this. If you like their work, you throw them a couple of euro every year to make or every month to make sure that they can continue to do the work that they're doing. And in return, maybe you get early access access to their latest podcast or mm-hmm. music or whatever it is it might be. So lots of different ways of people using crowdfunding to, to support their business or themselves. And you mentioned the overall figures which are astounding and huge but the individual campaigns can get very big in and of themselves. Yeah, they were really, really incredible sums of money. With GoFundMe for example the biggest campaign to date has been America's Food Fund that was set up by Leonardo DiCaprio and Lauren Powell Jobs the widow of Steve Jobs to raise money to feed disadvantaged people in the US. So far it's raised more than 45 million dollars through its campaign. Uh, another campaign set up by Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher to provide support to Ukraine has raised 37 million dollars on GoFundMe. Uh, meanwhile, there uh, more than 24 million dollars was raised by the Times Up Legal Defence Fund to help people who were taking cases relating to alleged assault and discrimination. And you know, we're not always talking about multiple millions being raised. Sometimes a campaign is successful simply because it raised far more than what the creator uh, expected. So a a really weird example of that back in 2014, a guy called Zach Danger Brown set up a Kickstarter seeking to raise $10 to fund the making of a potato salad, which is something he'd never made before and he wanted some help with it. Right. In the end, he raised $55,000 for his potato salad. And in fairness, he went on to make a potato salad recipe book, which he gave to the people who donated money towards it. So they got something back, which is a lot of money (laughs) going towards a lot of potato salads. What did he do with the 55 grand? (laughs) (laughs) buy potatoes Um, the non-charitable ones then how big do they get? Yeah they can get quite big as well the biggest I could find is one that I'm willing to bet uh, people wouldn't know that the person involved the author involved a guy called Brandon Sanderson an American fantasy and science fiction writer has written a wide array of books graphic novels very well respected in the area Uh, some might know him there was the man who was hand-picked to finish the the Wheel of Time series a hugely popular uh, fantasy series which is now being made into a TV show on, on Amazon Prime. Back in March 2022, he raised $41.7 million uh, for the release of four new books. It's a huge amount of money for, for four books. It had 185,341 backers, which isn't actually a lot considering that the money, you're talking about each of them giving an average of $225 
to this for four books. Uh, uh, so what finished. happens? Are, all, are those people expecting to get a dividend from this? Well, usually what happens is you would set up in as part of your campaign, say, if you donate $5, I'll give you a, th- a thank you in the book, in the back of the book. If you give me $10, I'll give you a copy of the book. If you give me $20, I'll give you a signed copy of the book. And, you know, so mm-hmm. it depends on what it is. And in some cases, it's simply you know, you, you get the, the knowledge of knowing that you're you're helping me fund whatever it is that I'm doing. So the author gets to keep like, what, 40 million of the 41.7? Well, an awful lot of it, yeah. I suppose depending on how much it costs to print the book and all that kind of stuff that there would be. But yeah, it's, it's potentially a way of making a lot of money. Uh, other successful Kickstarters, the, the Pebble Watch, uh, which is an early smartwatch that that company was ultimately acquired by Google. The Oculus, uh, a VR headset that was bought by Facebook or Meta and is now the foundation of their metaverse that they think we're all going to be in in the future. That was also a Kickstarter mm-hmm. when it, when it uh, first came along. Recent controversy, Alyssa Milano, the actress, she did a crowdfunding <laughs> exercise which was not re- well received. And that's not that unusual. It can, no, it can it's, happen. It's, it, there's this thing of uh, celebrities putting up crowdfunding. I've mentioned a few already, but sometimes they're referred to as rich beggars. People saying, look, you know, you're asking people to put money in their, their hands in their pocket, give her money when you already have a lot. So Alyssa Milano uh, posted a fundraiser recently for her son's baseball team. She wanted $10,000 to cover travel cost kits and player subs for the team and people you know pointed out that you know she's not exactly hard up herself yeah. she shouldn't be asking people to fund her child's activities it wasn't helped then by the fact that she posted a picture of herself recently of herself and her son having some bonding time at the Super Bowl which I imagine didn't come too cheap exactly. I should say though the GoFundMe did raise $15,000 she beat the, the target so people did put their hands in their pockets and uh, and pay it's for it uh, always a few yeah there's, I mean you know like that it worked I suppose and uh, there have been lots of cases of deceit though as well uh, we have the, the We Build the Wall campaign was set up in late 2018 and the aim was to raise a billion dollars to build a border wall between the US and Mexico it did raise 25 million dollars through GoFundMe but it all fell apart then and a, a number of people involved including Steve Bannon uh, were charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and money laundering because they were taking some of the money out of the fund for personal use two of the people involved uh, pled guilty on those charges Steve Bannon was pardoned by Donald Trump before he left office so he didn't face a federal case mm. although he was then charged with a uh, similar crimes in New York and, and GoFundMe did refund what was donated so the people got their money back uh, uh, for that um, unless they decided to transfer it on to a different fund. Adam Maguire of RT's Business Desk talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the ups and downs of crowdfunding sites. Let's be careful out there folks. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE Radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.